Plano Chapel podcast, where we're bringing you a dose of hope for your day. I'm Josie, your host, and I'm excited to have you join us for today's episode. For those returning to us, you might notice that we've given ourselves a little facelift to include changing our name. You can find us on all the same platforms as before. Just look for us under the new title, Kameno Chapel Podcast. Okay, we're diving in headfirst to an intense and super important topic. This one ended up being a little longer than our normal recordings, but the content is just too good to cut. So feel free to hit pause when you need a break and come back to it when you're ready for a little more. You can even back up and re-listen to any of it if you need to. I'm pretty sure I'll re-listen to this one several times myself. With the recent news and leak of the possibility of Roe versus Wade turning, making the laws on abortion passed down to the state level, most of us are aware of the volatile conversations happening all around us. Christians and non-Christians alike are wrestling with this topic and where they stand in regards to their personal beliefs. I find myself often staying quiet on the topic. I'd like to think it's for the purpose of not fueling any fires of conflict. But if I'm being honest, it's often because, while I know what I believe, I find myself either too emotionally hyped up to have a worthwhile conversation about it, or, and this is the strongest reason, I get tongue-tied and even brain-boggled in my efforts to communicate and advocate in a loving and effective way. I'm often feeling frustrated, convicted, and challenged to do more. And I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say I sometimes feel like this topic feels at times hopeless. Maybe that's you too. Or maybe you're not quite sure where you land on all of this. That's okay, wherever you might be. I hope you'll have an open heart as you listen to this conversation. It's not an easy topic, but it's one we cannot ignore. It's just too important. For today's conversation, I've brought someone to the table who brings a wealth of wisdom and information on this topic. She's a Christ follower working locally in our area in the field of supporting and promoting life. I've already learned a great deal in my conversations with her, and it's my prayer that today's conversations will bless, encourage, and maybe even challenge you in your journey on this topic. Also for today, I've asked our producer, Bo, to be a part of this conversation. So let's get right to it. All right, guys, I'm so glad to have you here at the table with me. Thank you, Beth and Bo, for being here. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna get dive right into this conversation, and I'm gonna start out by asking Beth if you would introduce yourselves to us, tell us um, who you are, where you work, and we'll we'll start from there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is an honor to just get to come and talk about a topic that. Uh, many Christians and churches are struggling with, and so it's a real honor to get to speak to it. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as Executive Director of Abundant Life. We are a local nonprofit. We have a really simple mission, and that is to advance gospel-centered, life-affirming work. So that leaves a lot of room for lots of different kind of stuff, which I'm excited to share about. That's, that's awesome. So tell us about, where is Abundant Life located? Yeah, so we launched out of Marysville in 2016, um, really out of an effort to say, well, we've got a lot of great organizations doing work to advance life and to then support moms and families after the choice for life has been made or after a choice for abortion was made and they need healing and the hope of Jesus. And so we started to bring together local organizations that are doing this work in Jesus' name. We started out with five in 2016, and by God's grace, we've grown to 38 partners across Washington State that 
and name Jesus and believe in the sanctity of human life. And it goes way outside of kind of the uh, caricature of what a pro-life Christian is. I think for most people, they're surprised. We really look at pregnancy clinics, which are vital and are doing such great work around here as shouldering the burden. These are the, well, if we've got a mom that we don't know what to do with her, then we check that box, we'll send her to the pregnancy clinic. Well, thank goodness they're there, and they usually start that process. But uh, they don't offer housing. They don't offer um, counseling past a certain point. They don't offer other tangible resources. They're trying to connect with those people in the community doing that work. So we saw a real need for just community of these believers to come together. Our model is really not... Uh, revolutionary, it's biblical, you know, right out of Second Corinthians. This is the body of Christ. These are the different parts. We don't look down on one because they do a different job than we do. We're all working in harmony to bring life um, and, God willing, abundant life to these moms and families and meeting needs that are a little outside of the box. Transportation needs, um, counseling needs, adoption at no cost exists wow. in our state. A lot of things that mm. people aren't aware of that are very exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, pers- like personally, I can speak. We support abundant life as a family and our daughter Bo your wife, wife yes. yeah, uh, works for you yeah, with we got, abundant we got life. insiders here <laughs> yeah, so so we have a personal connection and love for this ministry and have had a lot of fun watching it grow quickly yeah yeah, yeah it's exciting to see what God is doing so thank you for your work um, and those that that are partnering with you all of all of you listening that partner with Abundant Life, yeah. wonderful work happening in this great cause. It's an honor to partner with these folks, really um, giants of the faith that are walking this out in some ways that the church needs to hear about because it, it really bolsters faith to get to hear, oh, that's what it, that's what it looks like. We need those examples in our life, those mentors to say, well, that's what it looks like to step outside of sort of our comfort zone. And suddenly these families are not out there, but they're in our homes and they're around our tables. And there's a connection there that we have with them that is deep and meaningful. Oh, I love that so much. Well, Abundant Life is awesome. And we could do a whole episode just on the work of Abundant Life and all the partners that you work with. But for this episode, I want to switch gears now. And I want to spend some time talking through some of the top reoccurring arguments that I hear on social media, in the news, Mm -hmm. with conversations with friends and family that I personally have had. Um, And actually, I've heard these same arguments for years. And I know and love people who are on all different sides and, Mm -hmm. and on a spectrum here of where they fall and what they believe about these different things. I think most people are wrestling with where they land mm-hmm. on some of these things. I, I think um, these, I just tried to pick the top ones that I hear the most or that I have personally uh, had conversations about the most. So I'm just going to hit you with some of these and we're going to spend some time unpacking them. Perfect. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. And uh, Bo's going to chime in if, if he's got <clears throat> questions too or thoughts yep. and, and away we go. Okay, my first one is, what does it actually mean for us in our country and even in our state if Roe v. Wade is reversed? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of misinformation around that. You know, a lot of people say Roe is the law of the land, and it's not actually a law at all. It was a decision that was made in the Supreme Court, but laws aren't made in the Supreme Court, they're made in Congress. So when we're looking at a decision like Roe being overturned, what we're actually looking at is those uh, legalities that have to do with abortion go back to the states. So every state is sovereign and will have the right to go through its legal process and see 
what do we think about this issue, which is really good. I mean, there's so much about that that just echoes what our founders were all about, making sure that there wasn't sort of this tyrannical thing coming from on high, decreeing that we must all fall in line. That's where some have a problem with the federal government, depending on where you land. So what we're really looking at is that each state, uh, some of them are ready with trigger laws to overturn abortion in their state immediately. Um, Most of them not completely. Um, Some pro-lifers would say we would rather, you know, there are no exceptions whatsoever. Some have uh, put laws into place that would allow for some exceptions, and that's probably a discussion for another time on the legalities. But as far as Washington state goes, we were actually real um, trailblazers, unfortunately, in this particular arena. And uh, we had abortion laws passed three years before Roe v. Wade was even decided. So our wow. state has been in this for a long, long time. Uh, we likely will still be, even if Roe is overturned. Um, and so really what we're looking at now is becoming an abortion sanctuary state. California and Washington's uh, governors are both trying to pass legislation to make sure that we codify abortion as a right in our states. And so we're looking at a lot of people flooding in from the nearby states like Idaho that have those trigger laws in place and women will be coming to our state to seek abortions specifically. So as somebody who works with a lot of service providers and pregnancy clinics, they're really doing a great job to make sure that they're ready to try and serve these women who are going to be coming looking for assistance and hopefully open to hearing the truth of um, the development of the little one that they're carrying. Great. Great explanation. It is very confusing. So (laughs) (laughs) Certainly a lot to unpack. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Here's one of the most common conversations, arguments that I hear. It's just a clump of cells. Mm -hmm. It isn't a life yet. And most people I hear saying that tend to add on that until the fetus is able to live on its own, so the question of viability, Mm -hmm. that it's not a life, therefore it's okay to end it. Could you speak Mm -hmm. to that? Well, what you just said there kind of makes me pause. Uh, if it's not a life, then what are we ending? And that's kind of the, the big caveat here. Sort of the thing that, um, that kind of makes me smile as an evangelical Christian in America is we're often treated like these knuckle-dragging Neanderthal flat earthers. My apologies if there's any flat earthers that listen to this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, we're anti-science and we're not willing to look at the evidence and where it leads. And, and really the glory of our position is it is based in scientific fact. When Roe was decided, there was uh, a bit in the um, draft that actually spoke to, well, with scientific advances... I guess we'll see. We don't Mm. really have a window. At that time, ultrasound wasn't even a thing. So fast forward all these years later, we've got every single scientific advancement in embryology has landed on the side of life with zero exceptions. We even have uh, the ability to see and know and understand that at that moment of fertilization, when the sperm meets the ovum, there's actually a flash of light that happens. I mean, every single little bit of scientific evidence points to wow, well, this is kind of subtle. We don't really have a lot of you know, room to, to talk. So what we really get into here is maybe more of a personhood discussion. Well, they're, they're alive, and well, technically they're human. Nobody's going to argue that it's a hamster in the womb, but they don't have the same rights as the mother, and that's really where it always lands if you're in a conversation with somebody. I wanted to share this because I think this is really significant, is that at our local liberal universities, their embryology textbooks are, are very clear. So if we're unclear, when does life begin? 
you'll have a lot of liberals uh, and politicians that are maybe um, questioned in some of these hearings. They'll be like, well, I couldn't possibly say that's above my pay grade. Well, maybe they can't, but we can consult the textbooks that are used at the University of Washington and at Western Washington University, and I can read to you what they say. In the beginning of the embryology textbook, when that question is raised, here's what it says. Each human begins life as a combination of two cells, a female ovum and a much smaller male sperm. This tiny unit, no bigger than a period on this page, contains all the information needed to enable it to grow into the complex structure of the human body. The mother has only to provide nutrition and protection. Uh, if you guys want to know where that's found, it's in Turner JS and Helms DB Lifespan Developmental Second Ed. This is what's used in all of our major liberal universities. Wow. It's settled wow. science, folks. And guess what? As Christians, we get to really sit up tall and say, hey, we've got we've got a lot on our side, but science is is step number one. If we're gonna have this conversation, we need to know the truth behind human development. And the fact that a lot of people say, you know, it's really subjective on the pro-choice side. Well, when does when do you think life begins? When should abortion not be okay, if ever? And a lot of people will say, well, maybe when the heart starts beating. Well, did you know that most moms don't even know they're pregnant until after that point? The heart yeah. starts beating at about five or six weeks. It's I've seen my son's uh, ultrasound was remarkable that he mm -hmm. really was not, you couldn't see him, but you could see that little fetal pole, mm -hmm. what they call it, start beating. So these are things that we need to be familiar with because it helps us not to win an argument, but it helps us have confidence in these conversations that we have science on our side and we can actually you know, share that with people if they're unaware. And it does cause a lot of people from all over the spectrum of trying to figure this out to pause and say, oh, I really didn't know that about human development. And it's such an important thing to get right in our minds, in our journey of trying to figure out where we do land on this topic. We can't forget that part, mm -hmm. the science part. Mm -hmm. It's important for us to wrestle with that and to keep that in clear view when we talk about everything else. Mm -hmm. um, you said something to me in our prep for this podcast. Um, you made reference to when Roe v. Wade was first initially in the courts mm -hmm. and the decision was made that there was a comment made about science at that point. Do you remember what that was? You said something about if science reveals something in our future. Then we may have to reconsider. Well, that's really where we're at today. I mean, every single discovery in science since 1973 has been, oh, wow, this is like way more, you know, complex and, and developed so early. And we can have this window into the womb that we didn't have before, which is why pregnancy clinics are so um, bold in their use of ultrasound or consistent in their use of ultrasound because they know that that just sort of removes this veil of euphemism around what is the unborn. Well, it's very clear as a mother when you see that little baby even at the little gummy bear stage with little nubs mm. for arms and legs moving around, oh, it's pretty unmistakable, isn't it? We didn't have that benefit when Roe was passed. So that puts us in a very different position now and a very powerful position to be able to say, well, there's no question anymore what that is. And with the development of, of different scientific breakthroughs, uh, like life is uh, viable outside of the womb earlier than it was back when Roe was passed too. Is that correct? Yeah, and the level of development conversation uh, is really pretty easy if you think about it. There's a lot of people that struggle with, well, you know, five or six weeks, it barely looks like a human. I mean, it's why they kind of 
created this um, euphemism of it's a clump of cells. Scientifically speaking, we're all clumps of cells, right? And yeah. we're all on this uh, spectrum of humankind, and we're at a different level of development. A two-year-old is a lot smaller than my six-foot husband. Her value is not dependent on her yeah. size or her level of development. She doesn't speak as well as my 13-year-old. She's still just as valuable as my 13-year-old. So when we start to look at it that way, yes, they have that little alien baby stage where they don't quite look human yet, but does that change whether or not they're human? They're people with deformities and disabilities. That doesn't change mm. their value and the fact that they're human. And I think it's really important that we don't allow the way somebody looks or the size that they are ever influence whether or not they have value. If they are human, they have value and they deserve equality. If we are a, a generation, and I believe we are, that really longs for equality, we're missing the mark here and we've yeah. got to be able to stand firm mm -hmm. and no, we aren't, we aren't looking for prioritizing this baby over their mother. We just want to bring them up to the same level of equality and then help them with whatever they need. And that's really the heart of the pro-life movement that's often missed, I think. Mm -hmm. So well said. In my, in my experience on this topic, I feel like our feelings come ahead of us and mm -hmm. almost cloud our understanding of this mm -hmm. if um and sometimes we do that just to protect ourselves so if we have had experiences maybe we have had an abortion in our past or mm -hmm. we have have had <clears throat> strong views on it because of experiences with loved ones or others that sometimes it's hard to have an open mind to look at this mm -hmm. part to look squarely into the true science of it mm -hmm. and to be open-minded enough that it's okay. You could change your mind on this. Yeah. And if we're really looking into this, just because you were to recognize and give credit to these facts doesn't mean you're a, a bad person to have thought otherwise before. Yeah. Doesn't mean you still don't have the emotions you have. Mm -hmm. I just see that so often as what causes such conflict in conversation. Our emotions come to it. We feel better about things if we can just call it a clump of cells. Right. But then that's kind of pulling a veil over the topic, yeah. really. Then we're not really talking clearly about this, which um, I wanted to ask that question up at the top because clarifying mm -hmm. that we are talking about life from the moment of conception is important to understand in our conversations with others who have differing views <clears throat> because it really is at the heart you said earlier of what we're talking about yeah so my next question to you Be before we move too yeah, much please. further um in this conversation i think if there is someone listening that has had an abortion they could feel maybe a little under attack at this point. So Beth, what would you say to someone? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing is just to understand that even as believers, this is not the unforgivable sin. Yeah, Jesus died and uh, came to be a redeemer and a rescuer and a healer. And this is not somehow outside of that. It carries yes. a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, a lot of grief to deal with, a lot of shame for many women. Um, and the wonderful truth is that one of our partner organizations, um, Healing Hearts, international, wonderful, wonderful women, many of them post-abortive themselves, um, are ready to help people start their journey, to get freedom from this. Um, Christ said he came um, so that we could be free, not so that we could live in bondage to these things. And yeah. so... Um, healing I, Hearts is a fabulous organization yes. that brings such amazing healing to people. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Thank you for sharing about that. Okay, 
ectopic pregnancies, if abortion is uh, made illegal in some of our states soon, the woman with an ectopic pregnancy or other life um, concerns for the mother, um, those women won't be able to have the abortion and then they're going to die. <laughs> yeah, that's coming up a lot and it's causing a lot of confusion. And I, uh, there's a couple of things I want to touch on. One is um, first of all, that how we talk about all of these things matters deeply. All of us have had a conversation with somebody on either side that's angry and or really interested in just winning an argument. And we cannot look at it so like that. Um, there's so much about these tender conversations where we have to understand somebody, you know, coming from a different perspective, maybe post-abortive, may, you know, have been involved in driving to or paying for an abortion. And there may be a deep pain there that we're not aware of that we need to be so careful and compassionate about. We can still stand firmly in the truth, but truth and love. Um, there's just no question there. So on um, this particular topic is, is interesting to me because I did some writing and some discussing about it before 2016 when I experienced an ectopic pregnancy myself. Mm. And then God did a lot in my heart to say, huh, how were you treating that small percentage of women that experienced these things? And it wasn't with a lot of care, to be honest with you. I learned a lot through that suffering. And that's what God does is he uses our suffering and he redeems it. And then he gives us the opportunity to then um, be a little wiser and a little mm -hmm. more careful and a little more loving about how we treat others. So I think the first thing to just hit on is just compassion. We have to have compassion when having these conversations. We don't know the road that somebody's walked and how our words could impact. So be careful with your words. Be bold, have courage, speak truth. But you're allowed to speak a lot more truth in a conversation with somebody when they feel they can trust you. Then you have the opportunity to actually speak into that. And I've had those opportunities with complete strangers on the sidewalk or at the March for Life that even came from a uh, you know, a pro-choice atheist position because I treated them as human beings that I cared about and that I wanted to actually hear what they had to say. So don't be so ready to give an answer that you're not actually listening to what they say. And that really hit me after experiencing an ectopic pregnancy. The first question I would ask is, have you heard of a lot of prosecutions that happened with ectopic pregnancies and miscarriage before the Roe decision was made? Because there's a lot of talk about back alley abortions and the other reasons that Roe can't be overturned because it would be disastrous. Never in my life have I ever heard a story of a woman prior to Roe v. Wade, or many women, there's always exceptions, okay? I'm not going to pretend that that doesn't mm -hmm. exist. Our legal system isn't perfect as it is mm -hmm. right now, so I'm right. not going to pretend there couldn't be a tragic story of somebody who was wrongly accused of something. But this wasn't an issue prior to 1973, so I'm not sure why it's being brought up as a major issue now. But as a woman who experienced an ectopic pregnancy, I have a unique perspective because I was diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy, didn't have any symptoms, and I was like, I'm not doing a thing. They, they call that watchful waiting, and they don't, ad they don't advise it, but I'm a little stubborn. And I was <laughs> like, I'm not doing anything. I don't feel anything. I, I want to wait a little bit. And they said, fine, just make sure that you have people with you and that you're able to get to a hospital quickly. So that's what I did against the advice of doctors at a Catholic hospital locally that is smeared constantly by the pro-abortion organizations like NARAL and Pro-Choice Washington for not providing abortions. So these are two separate things, okay? These are not on the same. As much as I was told by several pro-choice friends, I'm so glad you were able to obtain an abortion when you needed one. The reality is this is a triage situation. This is not an elective abortion. I fought it longer than I should have, and I almost ended up with a rupture because of it. 
I had doctors lecturing me at this Catholic hospital, stop what you're doing and take this treatment. You are going to end up dead if you don't do it. So it's ironic to me that that's the, the continual argument is that, oh, they're just, you know, these Catholic hospitals and, and these states are going to start prosecuting women. I actually felt the opposite. I had the opposite experience mm -hmm. of you need to do this now. And I'm not ready to do anything until we know what's going on with this pregnancy. Um, another observation I made recently was the Guttmacher Institute is Planned Parenthood's research arm. So you'll hear a lot of statistics about abortion because they do surveys and they try and get this information out to the public. In their list of reasons women have abortions, they didn't include ectopic pregnancy because mm. it's not an abortion and they know it. <laughs> so wow. it's kind so of say a, that again. An ectopic pregnancy, when you deal with it medically, yeah, yeah. when you remove it. It's not considered an elective abortion. Yeah. And right. it's not even treated the same way. So um, it's, it's tricky. And there are some ethical arguments to be made for how you go about treating an ectopic pregnancy. But as of today, um, our medical technology is not in a place where we can remove and, and relocate one of these little babies. And as painful as it was to walk through that with my husband and my family, um, it's been a good learning experience. And, and I'm thankful for the ability that I have to be able to speak to this at a time where there's a lot of misinformation being spread, yeah. I believe, to cause fear. Because there's a lot of things that um, are used by Planned Parenthood and by the abortion industry to try and make sure that they keep, keep their um, patients coming. And unfortunately, this is just another one of those tactics. So to be clear, because this is one I am, I read it daily right now mm -hmm. on social media. If I have an ectopic pregnancy in the state of Washington, let's say Roe v. Wade does get turned over, our state chooses to remain open to abortions. Mm -hmm. Let me rephrase that. Let's say I live in a state that says they're illegal now. Mm -hmm. You cannot get an abortion. And I have an ectopic pregnancy. And I go to the hospital. That hospital can remove the ectopic pregnancy, even though they're in a state of no abortions allowed, Absolutely. because the removal of an ectopic pregnancy is not considered an abortion. Right. And I think it really gets yeah. into, if you, if you understand ethics, the intent. The intent of removing an ectopic pregnancy is not to end the life of that baby. If there was any way to relocate that baby, mm -hmm. that would be done. Mm -hmm. The intent is to save the life of the mother. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference in the world. They don't go in because they just decided for reason A, B, or C that this is not a pregnancy that's wanted. They go in because if they don't, they will die. This is a very serious uh, condition. And I think there there is a lot of misinformation on both sides about this. Um, but as far as our medical uh, professions go now, there really isn't any other option at this point. And so, yeah, as, as far as I understand it, and I'm not, you know, an expert on all things, but I have experienced this at a Catholic hospital that's criticized for not performing abortions. This is not classified as an abortion. Incidentally, Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics don't treat ectopic pregnancy. Mm. So there's Say a lot again. of... <laughs> <laughs> abortion clinics are not treating ectopic pregnancy. Hospitals are. And OBGYNs yeah. within a hospital are. So that's great clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ready thank for you for sharing your story. Yeah. You yeah. Appreciate it. yeah. Thank you. Okay. What about a preborn baby in utero that has something wrong detected developmentally, whether it's spina bifida, cerebral palsy, down syndrome, <clears throat> there is a myriad of conditions that we now, thanks to science can identify early on in pregnancy. And isn't it more merciful just to end that life before it's born rather than to sign them 
and their families up for a lifetime of pain and hardship. Yeah, and I think this is where we really get into that emotional cloud that happens. And often people that are in defense of abortion will go to these arguments that are highly emotional because it becomes more difficult to detangle that and kind of get through, cut through that noise. So I'm really glad you asked this one. this really comes along with, uh, there's actually an argument that I would, not an argument, I shouldn't even call it that, a talking point mm-hmm. called the sled argument. It is called the sled argument. And it really just kind of sets you up for these are the main things that a somebody that may be in favor of abortion is going to put out there. And they deal with size, level of development, uh, environment, and degree of dependency. So it's called the sled argument. And mm-hmm. it's relatively easy to remember. It's taken me a little while, but the one we're, we're dealing with here is degree of dependency. So it could be a disability. It could be size. It could be viability, which all of these are changing factors, right? There are people who are born that are told you'll have no quality of life. You won't walk, you won't speak. Mm-hmm. And they beat the odds and we're like, mm-hmm. wow, praise Jesus. There's some that don't. Um, but the reality is, is their degree of dependency doesn't really matter. I have a daughter living with type one diabetes. If we didn't give her a insulin pump and regulate her blood sugar, she would be dead at this point, uh, 12 years after her diagnosis. So that's a pretty great level of dependency on her parents, but doesn't affect her personhood and her rights and her value. And so we have to look at, does the circumstance dictate somebody's value and their rights as a human? And they they just don't. As soon as we go down that path and you dehumanize somebody to a place where you say, it's really not worth it for that person. It's okay to take that life. Millions of people have died all over the world in various times in history. So it's a dangerous place to go, and we should be walking with great trepidation around these issues. But I think probably the best way to deal with this is with a story Um, because we can talk about these things philosophically and, and debate all day long, but until we really uh, look at what does this look like for a mom to walk this out, um, we had the great honor of, of walking alongside a mom and a friend who was diagnosed around 15 weeks. Her baby was diagnosed in utero with anencephaly, which is basically a, a malfor- excuse me, malformation of the brain. Uh, and most of these babies, if they make it to delivery, don't survive delivery. If they do, they usually have about two days that they might live outside of the wow. womb. There are very few exceptions. A few babies have survived longer. So she was advised to abort. It would be the merciful thing to do. These babies have no quality of life. Even mm-hmm. if he's born, his eyes, these babies are born with very swollen eyes. They're generally shut. You're not even going to be able to have any kind of interaction with him. It would really be the kind thing to do. When a medical mm-hmm. professional tells a mother this, He puts her in a pretty awkward position because we are taught to trust doctors, which, you know, in most cases that would be right and good to do. Um, But in these cases, as a culture, we have to be willing to look at these these little ones and say, what does a mother do with a born child? And she gives nurture and she gives comfort and she is the best mother she can be. So this particular individual is a unique one. And she spent the remaining months of her pregnancy every day waking up. And his, his name is Harrison. She said, Harrison, what are we going to do today? And she went to Hawaii and she parasailed and did all kinds of, <laughs> she had some generous people in her life that made adventures possible mm-hmm. that came alongside her and said, we're going to make every day count with this little one. He's warm and safe and these babies don't suffer um, that have this particular um, disability uh, in utero. That's about the safest place they're ever going to be. And so um, when it came time to deliver, it was a very difficult delivery because the skull is not fully formed, but she was able to deliver this little baby boy and he came out against all odds with his eyes wide open and they had two minutes to gaze into one another's Mm -hmm. eyes. And for her to have that moment to say, "I, I, I stood by you, I loved you, I cared for you, I nurtured you. 
Um, wow. One of the coolest things about her is she actually had his little footprints that they took after birth tattooed on the tops of her feet. So every mm. hike she goes on, every adventure she goes on, they still go on together. Mm. But wow. now instead of living with on, not only the grief of losing a child, which most parents can you know, only imagine the grief that that um, entails, she would have had shame and regret and this act of violence done to this little one on top of that. With the a, questions of, well, what if? Yeah, as opposed to, I loved him every day that I could until that point. And yes, there's been great difficulty and grief, but she's also been surrounded by a community that loves her, that walked that with her, and allowed her to grieve the best way that a mother could. There's no great way to get through that except with people that love you and that can walk you through that, and, and she experienced that. So I think if we look at it from a little bit different perspective, which is is what does mercy really look like? Can we just reclaim mm. that? There's a proverb that is just so powerful and has stuck with me that says that a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, but even the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And I think that's what we see in culture mm. right now. They're, people are trying to be kind. They have, a, I think a lot of people have good intentions. They have a good heart. They want good, mm. but they're so confused about what that looks like. And they maybe don't have an example of a courageous mom that said, no, I'm, I'm not going to let this baby be destroyed. At that, at that stage of development, at 15 weeks, that's a gruesome procedure. Instead, I will love him every breath I have until he's Mm. breathes his last it's a powerful testimony of what it can look like and I know that that's just one story of many and sometimes there is you know a born child that then does suffer <clears throat> but do we do we only value people who don't suffer I, I mean in my circle everybody I know has suffered at some point yeah. mm -hmm. that doesn't make us less valuable and it actually teaches us a lot about compassion and how to live in community with others Josie I, I know we didn't plan for this, but mm -hmm. would you share a little bit of your sister's story? Because I feel like yeah. that, that really plays into this yeah. topic. Yeah, yeah, I can. I have a younger sister by three years who was born um, with severe brain damage that occurred during birth, mm -hmm. during delivery. Oxygen mm -hmm. deprivation caused that. And she, when she was born, the doctors told my parents, just put her away in an institution. She won't she will just be a burden to you. She won't be able to see or hear or move or take care of herself or do anything. And my parents um, took her home and loved her well. Mm -hmm. And um, through God's great care and provision uh, and a lot of help by a surrounding community, my sister, Rachel's her name, was able to gain some sight and some hearing she never spoke a word. She never walked a step. And she did depend on us for every bit of her care. Mm -hmm. And she lived a profound life. And she had um, joy within her that I can't even explain to you. Mm -hmm. And in her simple mind um, was just God's gift to us. And the the job that did within just our family mm -hmm. and our hearts and our understanding of life and how precious it is, no matter what it looks like, no matter yeah. if it's broken or not, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's life. And, mm -hmm. um, we have years and years and years of wonderful, treasured, formative memories with mm -hmm. my sister. She's now in heaven. Mm -hmm. and um, I cannot wait to meet her because then I can have a conversation <laughs> yeah. with her. It's going to be a whole new level. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> That's right. And, um, you know, I remember lots of conversations growing up about it, and my parents would often talk about 
they would refer to on this subject to Hitler mm-hmm. and how Hitler had an agenda to wipe out what he would call useless eaters, mm-hmm. people who could not contribute to society. Mm-hmm. My sister, by his terms, was a useless eater. Mm-hmm. My sister taught more lessons to me than anyone in my 51 years of my life. I don't think that was useless. It was precious, precious, valuable life that God used for purposes far beyond what I will ever know. And I, anytime I hear someone use this argument, I... I get very emotional and passionate about it because I have never met a person with any form of special needs. And I've met a lot. I was a special ed teacher by trade for, yeah, Yeah. for, for a preseason of my life, um, whose value wasn't infinite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was trying to find the quote. There's a quote, I think it's Mother Teresa, that says that a society uh, is judged by how it treats its weakest member. Mm. And, that, and there's so much good that comes from a, a community coming around individuals like this and understanding what we can get from them, what they can offer mm. is sometimes mm. not what we're expecting. It's so much, yes. so often unexpected. Um, I love that you shared so that because I was thinking about her as I was talking yeah. as well. I've heard, I've heard the stories of how she impacted a whole community on yes. Camino. Yeah. So yep. yeah, what a thing. There's yep. many people that live their lives, go to work every day and don't aren't remembered the way that she is mm-hmm. for her That's impact. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, got I got one more here. This is a big one. This is probably the biggest one I hear the most often. It's a difficult one because talking about this one can make us sound insensitive, mm-hmm. and we're not. I just want mm-hmm. to put that out there, that, yeah. that, that this topic... Um, breaks our hearts no matter what side of this topic you're on. And sometimes that gets lost. Yeah. So <clears throat> you can all guess what I'm about to talk about. What about the young victim of either incest or rape? Yeah. Why should they have to carry this reminder of the abuse they've suffered and then even potentially have a lifelong commitment to something they didn't sign up for, they didn't want, and is a could be a painful reminder for the rest of their lives of what has happened. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of flippant comments that can be made right mm-hmm. off the bat, and we just have to start with a brokenness over the reality that we live in a world where these things happen, and there is no quick moving past this to get to our point. Yeah. The very first response we have is brokenness over the fact yes. that any woman or child has to face this reality. Yeah. Um, yes. Most of us, you know, uh, by God's grace, can't imagine. Some of us can what it's like to walk that road. And for those that can, this can be a very difficult one to work through. But there is a, there is a logical uh, path to take on this one. And it's, it's one that really, I think, even through years of pro-life um, advocacy and learning, was the hardest one for me to work through. But it, it really comes down to this. In a situation of rape where there is a child that is conceived, there are two victims and one perpetrator who should receive the penalty. Unfortunately, I think most people believe that uh, the rapist doesn't really get what he deserves most of the time, and maybe I won't go into detail on what many people think they do deserve, (laughs) but I think you could use your imagination. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But they don't get a death sentence. 
and even for the horrific crime that they have committed, should their child receive a death sentence for the for the crimes of the father. And I don't think anybody would ever advocate for that. That makes no sense. On top of that, if we're talking about the pain that a woman endures from that violent, traumatic act, one of the, the few that we can, um, it just leaves us speechless. Mm. Adding violence and more trauma on top of the violence and trauma that she's already experienced is not going to take away her pain. It's not a solution that she walks away from like, whew, you know, glad that's over and I never have to think about that again. Mm. All it does is adds trauma to an mm. already terrible situation. And the only thing I can think of uh, more heinous than rape would be the murder of an innocent. So now she carries with her what was done against her and what she participated in doing. Mm. Um, it's a difficult situation, but what we look for, and I can give some some broad examples of some of the adoption specialists that work within Washington State. Again, I'm just going to repeat because this is kind of revolutionary. They don't get paid for these adoptions. The adoptions to these families are all but free. There's a few, like a very small amount of legal fees, but they basically work as missionaries to these mm -hmm. birth moms first mm -hmm. and to the adoptive families. Um, and what they've run into is you know, a variety of women of all childbearing ages. You can use your imagination of what that looks like. Um, and what they are able to do is help that woman break a cycle of abuse and do better for her child than what was done to her. And they take great pride in that, and they get to start over. And now they have a relationship, many of them with an adoptive family, and these particular agencies only do open adoptions. So that mm -hmm. family, that loving family that this baby is placed with is now cheering on somebody that's endured some really, really hard trauma and shows up at their graduations and their other events because now they've got somebody in their corner, whereas they were a victim before. The other thing I'll add is that we often see uh, rape used as a, a tool to keep power over a woman. Now, when she becomes pregnant, abortion is often used to cover that up and to keep her in control. So we're not freeing many of these women by allowing their victimizer to subject her now to abortion and then keep her in a position of control and now guilt and shame. And often, you know, well, there's a whole lot that goes along with that. But it isn't freeing to a woman to be trapped in that cycle. We have to help her break that cycle of abuse, understand her value and worth, and the value and worth of every human. And you're not going to do that by then devaluing her child and saying, well, this is going to be too hard for you. You can't. We can say, this is going to be hard, and I'm so sorry for what happened to you, but let us help walk you through this in a way that will bring you to healing. And that's the hope of the gospel. We don't really have that without Jesus. So... That's what we yeah. see happening. This isn't just fictional. These are these are real life stories. I just got to meet and hold a little baby that was the product of one of these terrible events. Wow. Mm. There's nothing like that. You can't then say, "Well, you shouldn't be here, little adorable." Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know that that baby is not a sin, and mm. how they were conceived was a horrific event. But there are many um, children born as a product of rape that now speak up for these little mm. babies because. They wouldn't be here had somebody convinced their mother of this ideology that that little child doesn't deserve to live because it's going to be too hard for mom. And was that baby that you just met, was that baby adopted through one of these agencies? It was, yes. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you for uh, explaining it that way. That Unpacking that a little bit um, is something we don't often do because our emotions, once again, get right in front of it, and then we can't even get to that point of the, of the conversation. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Okay, switching gears just a little bit here. Another, another question for you. If we make abortion illegal, 
women are still going to go get abortions, but now they won't be regulated or safe. So we're back to the argument of back alley abortions, right. and women are going to get hurt, sick, or die. How is that compassionate or merciful to women in unplanned situations? Yeah. I think one of the hardest things when somebody presents you with an argument like that is you're immediately put on the defensive. You have to prove why you actually care about women, <laughs> why you're not just looking for you know women to die in back alley abortions. And, and um, I think it's really important to make sure that when somebody throws a lot at you like that, that you really... Uh, you don't want to avoid answering the question because people, that's irritating. Politicians do that. We don't want to be those people. But you also right. don't want to necessarily jump and respond to every piece of it because, I mean, a lot of these arguments that we're talking about, they'll all be peppered at you at once. And so you kind of have to be ready to say, all right, I'm going to address one of those and I'm going to try and, you know, be mm -hmm. honoring to that. But I'm not going to try and answer all of these at once because it just becomes a lot. Our emotions get involved. And so trying to just stay really calm and trying to make sure that we're hearing what they say, but picking the things that we feel most prepared to address that make the most sense. And with this one, there's a couple different things to unpack. Um, the first one is kind of this statement that making it illegal won't stop it. People are still going to do it. So why would you make a law against it? Well, the law is a teacher. Nobody passes a law thinking, whew, thank goodness, that's never going to happen again. <laughs> if only, right? I mean, that's what we hope for. But right. that's not the understanding. The understanding is the law is a teacher. It teaches culture what's right or wrong. I love when people in the church will be like, well, that's fine. Do your pro-life work. But you can't legislate your morality. That's your own morality. You can't legislate that. Do we not understand that the actual nature of a law is moral? We are making a moral statement by saying this is right this is wrong. If you do the wrong thing, there's going to be a penalty. That's what a law is all about. So whose morality are we going to legislate? If we believe in the law of God and we believe that the Bible is true, then we are going to try and legislate what we know to be true and right. And so when Christians remove themselves from that process and say, well, we can't legislate our morality, they're just ceding to the world's morality, whatever that looks like, which is changing every day as we've seen a lot. Mm. Um, there's a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that I think says it best. Just because it's illegal doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You know, so why do we pass a law? And when he was writing, when he was fighting for civil rights, um, he he said this, and I just nobody can say it better than this. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. So while the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. And when you change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes and hearts will be changed. And I just, I think that's really the heart of the law. It's a teacher. It's meant to be a teacher. It's not meant to restrain every single evil, but it does uh, point people to what is true and what is good. And there's many post-abortive women that I've spoken to that have said now, regretting their abortion, if that had been illegal, I would not have done it. I was a good girl. I would have never done it. I was trying to cover something. And because it was legal, I was like, well, I guess it's okay. Well, a lot of people say that. Well, if it's legal, mm -hmm. it must be okay. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, we've seen in the past that our laws don't always reflect morality. That's why our morality isn't based on the laws. Our laws reflect morality. The black man mm -hmm. could have been owned you know, in the 1800s. Now we would absolutely agree. Yeah. That's not moral. Right. Everybody can For agree. Sure. This is pretty obvious. But they had to change the laws in order to start changing hearts and minds. And that's really the goal here. It's not to injure women. It's to teach about mm. the value of human life and that this isn't something that's up for grabs. Mm. So good. Okay, I've got two more questions for you to All unpack right. here with us. What <clears throat> would you say to the person who does believe 
the fetus is a baby from the moment of conception, but also believes in the mother's right to choose because it's her own body, the my body, my choice position. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do something that's annoying, but I'm actually going to, I'm going to force us to talk about terminology here for a minute because we've talked about conception a lot today. And there was a point in our recent U.S. history where the term conception meant when sperm met ovum. But the uh, medical professionals actually changed that to mean implantation of a fertilized egg. So I think when we talk about it as pro-science, pro-life people, it's actually really important that we use the terminology fertilization from the point of fertilization. Because there are a lot of things like plan B where people would say, oh, that's not, no, that's not, that's fine because they're just, it's preventing you know, Tell us what Plan B is for those who don't so know. So Plan that. B would be an emergency contraceptive, but it is an abortifacient drug. So it's a drug that is basically um, attempting to make sure that a fertilized egg is going to be flushed out of a woman's system. And I, at one point, knew the details surrounding that, but it's quite easy to Google and find out, mm-hmm. you know, what what that exactly entails. But it is it is trying to make sure that there is an abortion induced for that fertilized egg. But people will say, oh, that's not the same as an abortion because of that terminology difference. Because conception, if they say, oh, it won't affect conception, a lot of these drugs will say that. That's, they mean implantation of a fertilized egg. Okay. So be aware of that. And that, again, that's something that you can research on your own. It's easy to Google. But those terms were changed um, somewhere around Roe v. Wade. Okay. Hmm. So there's a significance there. That was a little off, off topic. Okay. But I think it's really important for us to sort of take control of some of that terminology kindly and gently in conversation and make sure that we're all on the same page with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So choice. The word choice is used a lot. One of my favorite things to do is say, oh, what do you mean by choice? Because people will use that as a veiled euphemism for abortion. So you ask them, what do you mean by choice? Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get irritated, but I think most people are pretty game. You can even say, you know, hey, are you willing to kind of like play around with this a little bit? Can I challenge you a little and just see what you think? And, um, you know, as long as you have a very open um, attitude and conversation, you can kind of challenge people a little bit. And usually they'll come back with, why? I mean, abortion. Okay, what do you mean by abortion? Because most people won't get past that. They're never going to name it. They're never going to call it what it is. Um, And you can even say, you know, somebody recently told me, well, uh, an evangelical would say it's the murder of an unborn baby. I'm like, well, let's just leave religion out of it. Let's leave, let's just go Mm -hmm. to a, you know, scientific perspective. If we even take it further than that, if you were in the military and you were to abort a mission, what are you doing? You're stopping something that's in progress. Well, what is Mm -hmm. it that's in progress would be the question. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we have to ascertain well, it's a human life. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, is it ever okay to end the life of an innocent human being? And when is that? And that's a pretty big question to ask. And so you can start to unpack that. Where that gets wrapped into my body, my choice, um, there's a pretty easy answer. I think you have to be really careful how you use this um, and with an attitude of humility. But the simple answer is the body inside your body is not your body. These are mm-hmm. two distinct bodies. Scientifically, we know that at the moment of fertilization, when that sperm penetrates the ovum, there is a unique set of DNA from that of its mother. So from that moment of fertilization, we know scientifically that that's the case. So this is no longer the mother's body. Not to mention if a woman's pregnant, we don't say, well, now she has 20 fingers, 20 toes, Mm -hmm. four arms, four legs. Oh, by the way, if she's pregnant with a boy, she's got male genitalia. Now that's not the reality and it's something we can laugh about, but it's, that's, this is not her body. So what it becomes is a discussion about bodily autonomy. That's what the my body, my choice is. She should have control over her body. There are many women 
in the course of history that weren't in control of their own bodies. And that that's a tragic truth of our, you know, the history mm-hmm. of mankind. So we understand that comes from a place of wanting independence, of wanting control over their mm-hmm. own bodies. That's a good thing. We can all mm-hmm. agree that's a good thing. But there's a question uh, in, in bodily autonomy that's pretty easy to portray through a, a metaphor, and that is I can stand in the middle of the room over here and swing my arms around like a helicopter all day long like a weirdo, and all you can do is look at me and say, you're crazy, but you, you can't really stop me because I'm not hurting you. The minute I come creep into your space and my fist makes contact with your nose, we have a problem. My bodily autonomy, my right to do what I want with my body ends when it makes contact with the end of your nose and causes an injury. So really what's at stake here is is personhood and human rights. Again, it all comes back down to personhood and human rights. If these little people, no matter the size, have unique DNA sets, are separate functioning um, bodies that left with time and protection will grow just like the rest of us did, because we were all at that point and size one point in our uh, existence then um, they should be protected, just like their mom. Again, I'll say this because I think this is really important. This is not about prioritizing the life, health, and safety of a baby over that of its mother. It's about bringing them up to equal status because all humans deserve equal rights, and we believe that because we know we're endowed by our creator um, to be image bearers of him. And so from a Christian perspective, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, At that moment of fertilization, God has given us the ability to see the beauty of his intricate design and that all of the blueprints for life are there. Josie was going to have beautiful brownish, you know, <laughs> sandy <laughs> hair and a smile that lights up the room. God built that into who she was going to be at that moment of fertilization. And God forbid that we ever say, well, you know, it's, it's ours to take. It's just not. So I hope that helps. It's definitely... It's sad because it's a very short tagline, but it carries, again, a lot of layers. Most of these arguments carry multiple layers of what people are trying to advocate for, and it can be difficult to detangle. Yeah, and one of the layers of this argument is also something that we touched on earlier in the episode, too. So if someone brought up like the ectopic pregnancy thing during this conversation of My Body, My Choice, we, like, we already talked about that yeah. earlier in the episode. But that well. muddies the waters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if we're not careful... We get caught up in, well, it is, it is the woman's body. She should be able to choose. But your explanation was very good. We need, to, we need to peel back that onion a little bit and talk scientifically for a moment about what it is that we're yeah. talking about. Right. So if we, if we go back to those terms and we're talking about an abortion, when a woman has an abortion, she's not aborting her body. That thing yeah. that's in progress, it, she'll continue on. Should she yeah. have an abortion? That's not the question. The question is, what mm-hmm. are we aborting? What is the thing in progress that we're stopping? And it is not her heartbeat. It's the heartbeat of her child that is distinct and mm-hmm. unique. Uh, one thing that I think we actually didn't get to earlier that I'd love to touch on that is often uh, very closely tied to this argument, which is the life of the mother. So we, we dealt mm-hmm. with ectopic pregnancy, but there's also a question of preeclampsia, diabetes, a cancer right. diagnosis yes. during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. These are all, again, kind of mother's worst nightmare that sure. they're going to have something happen within their pregnancy that's going to affect their baby and or their ability to carry to term. So that's, even though it's a relatively small percentage of women that would seek an abortion for this reason, there's some really, really easy talking points here. Um, and the main one being that there is never, ever a reason to kill a baby to save the life of her mother 
Even in the instance of ectopic pregnancy, like I said, the goal of that procedure is not to end the life of the baby, but to remove a tube that's going to burst and cause a mother to die. So if you look at um, any of these scenarios, um, killing a baby, especially late term, a lot of people will advocate for late-term abortion because of the life of the mother. That procedure takes three days. Mm-hmm. This is not a quick fix. And for any mother that's in a life-threatening situation, a C-section is typically going to be used in that case. And then there's an effort to save both patients mm-hmm. in that situation. By killing a baby, you're not going to somehow stop. We need to end the pregnancy, the mom, especially like in preeclampsia. There's a high blood pressure situation. Baby needs to come out because once baby's out and the placenta's out, then that blood pressure can return to normal. Killing the baby isn't necessary. Removing the baby from the womb may be necessary mm-hmm. in order to save that mother and get her back to a healthy place. So, so to clarify there, if abortion is illegal in a state, the, uh, the mother will still be able to have a procedure that would p- hopefully save both her and the baby in the case of preeclampsia or other conditions. Yeah, because an abortion isn't necessary to save. And, I, and yeah. you don't have to take my word for it. I did a little research, and there's two physicians. The first one that I'll, I'll um, speak to is Dr. Anthony Levitino. We will be talking about this later, but he's actually going to be coming to speak in Washington State at our conference. Um, this doctor was an abortionist for many years uh, before he basically had a conversion experience and understood what he was doing and the value of human life. Um, After that point, he worked at the Albany Medical Center, which is one of the top high-risk obstetrics hospitals in America. So he was working with some of the most complex pregnancy situations possible. These were mothers with cancer, diabetes, heart disease, rampant toxemia, and other life-threatening health issues. And he said never once in all the years that he um, worked with these moms was it necessary to kill her baby in order to help her. It was always either early delivery or c-section not there's just never a time where you have to kill the baby you remove certainly might need to remove that baby um but there was another quote from the former surgeon general um everett coop and he said in my 36 years in pediatric surgery i have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life so these are these are um, doctors that would have called themselves pro-life. Now we're going to go to a statement by Dr. Alan Guttmacher, uh, who the Guttmacher Institute uh, basically was, was out of his work. And 50 years ago, he said, today it's possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save life. That was wow. a pro-abortion <laughs> doctor. This was 50 years wow. ago. Science has wow. advanced... These, this just it's just not true. And I, I, I usually wouldn't say something like that in an argument with somebody, but there does come a point where you have to say, that's just not true. Here's what yeah. the doctors who are in those fields say. Um, you know, think of an example where an abortion, a procedure that's invasive and sometimes days long, is going to be a better option than, a, I mean, I had a C-section. I had an emergency C-section. That baby was out before I even knew it was happening. Those are very quick procedures. So it's a it just doesn't make sense. It's not logical. And, and it makes me upset that that misinformation is perpetuated so yeah. much because mm-hmm. people just, that's what we hear a lot. We, we hear such things from news. Yeah. We hear that as if it's fact, the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it makes me upset because yeah. people are, 
they're believing something that's just scientifically a mistruth. Right. And they're, they're not being fed the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why conversations like this are so important. And our need to open up our hearts here a little bit and to be able to have conversation, not be afraid of it, mm -hmm. to talk about it, talk it out. Because there are things we, we may think we know it all, but we have, may have been misinformed. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's so important to like, no, here's some medical truth coming from experienced mm -hmm. doctors in the scientific field. Yeah. There's a song I love that talks about there's uh, in the world, there's a million voices that have never been heard. Apathy has made himself our master. And I think that mm -hmm. becomes true when we, we know mm -hmm. what's true, but we're not quite sure how to communicate it. And so we become apathetic, not out of a lack of desire to be people who speak truth, but a lack of resources. And, and God's put some just amazing people in my life to help me work through these things. Probably about 15 years ago, I literally said out loud to my husband, I can't talk about abortion anymore. It makes me angry. I don't, I just don't even know how to navigate it. And I think at that point in my life, God knew what he was going to do with me, but he's like, oh, <laughs> you said it out loud now. So you're going to know that this is only on my strength that you're doing any of this because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have the ability to think through and talk through. I've had wonderful mentors and people who have shared this information with me and it's my um, joy. And I feel like part of my mission in life to be able to then go help other people to just cut through the noise. There's so much emotion. Mm -hmm. There's so much misinformation. And the sad part is that I've talked to a lot of pro-choice people who I think are coming from a place of genuine care for women, oh, but yes. they just had the truth twisted just enough for them to say, well, that's not a loving position. This is when in reality, it, it's really quite opposite in most cases. Well said. Yeah. Well Thanks. said. All right. One more. This one, we're going to switch gears here and talk a little bit more about economics mm -hmm. and resources and that whole side of things. So, this is my favorite topic. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try to construct this question uh, in a way that makes sense here. Yeah. If you ban abortions and force a mother to carry her baby and she is a young teenager or in a bad economic spot in life, you're forcing her to stay stuck in poverty or perhaps causing her future to be ruined mm -hmm. say for example the young teenager who since she can't have that abortion will no longer be able to follow her dreams or get an education or work her way out of dependence on others isn't this just forcing poverty it would seem more compassionate and caring to let her have the choice to abort so that her life isn't negatively affected by the circumstances, especially if the pregnancy was due to terrible circumstances mm -hmm. like we've talked about before, like rape or incest, um, or being someone that's been being taken advantage of in a relationship. We know that that happens a lot to young, to young people as well. Um, there is all this talk about forcing her to carry the baby but then there's no resources out there. If she does keep the baby, like that side of the equation is pushing, no abortion, keep the baby. But then uh, there's no help for her mm -hmm. after that. And we all know raising a child or even the idea of going through the pain of putting someone up for adoption, there's resources needed there. Mm -hmm. You're, you're asking her to carry a baby for nine months. Like there's going to be some side effects there from all of that, that she's mm -hmm. going to take on. Mm -hmm. So that's a biggie. Um, take that on for us. Yeah. Well, I think the first one, and, and some people 
don't love this, but I think if you're in a good conversation with somebody you've already built some trust with, it's important to push back on certain stuff. So I could just go right into the response I have for that, which I, half of me kind of wants to. But the other half of me says, well, let's take the 100 foot view here. Do we really fear suffering and poverty so much that we don't believe that there will be any value for that life in that circumstance, whether it's the life of the mother or the life of her child? I was just reading to my kids about Abraham Lincoln. That kid grew up in absolute poverty and it shaped who he was and he rose above and he's one of our most beloved presidents. Mm -hmm. Those circumstances, whether it's a disability, whether it's poverty, those do not determine the worth of the mother or the child. And we live in a country where opportunity abounds. So it's not to say she's going to pull herself up by her bootstraps, you know, and make a way. But are we, are we, I mean, the thing that kind of cracks me up a little, and I don't mean to poke fun, I think feminism in its original form has some great value. I want to vote. I want to have a voice. Mm -hmm. I want to work. You know, mm -hmm. these are things yeah. that are valuable to me. But as soon as feminism crossed over into the abortion conversation, how it's most often used is, well, she can't. She couldn't possibly. That's too hard for her. Mm -hmm. Is that very feminist? Because the women I know are strong and capable, and they have overcome. All of the women that I know have overcome a set of circumstances <clears throat> in their life that are sometimes not ideal. Um, I can be a little bit glass half full, so you can push back on that if you want. We'll have a conversation. But the reason I have the hope that I do is because in my position working with 38 nonprofit leaders across Washington State and a few of them nationally, I get a firsthand view into the actual tangible help that's happening in our backyard in Camino, on Camino and in Marysville mm -hmm. and Smoky Point and, you know, down into uh, Bellevue and Gig Harbor and Puyallup. We have got amazing nonprofits that are not just saying, oh, good, we got her past that initial decision. Now, you know, best of luck with you. What we see is this amazing safety net of nonprofits who are not funded by the government, who have freedom to help women uh, make their way and improve their lives and recover from trauma and be conquerors of their own life. And, and they've got a community that's helping them to do it. And so we see that one of my favorite places that I see that is in several of our housing programs, um, New Way Ministries up in Linden, Acres of Diamonds in Duval, New Beginnings Homes down in Puyallup, Vine Maple Place is a new partner in Maple Valley that actually most of the people they serve are not homeless. They're on the brink of homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so out of 360-some families that they serve each month, only 30 are actually in their emergency shelter. The rest, they're actually working to prevent homelessness. But many of these organizations are overlooked. Um, and I think a lot of people politically want to say, well, the government, the government better be doing this. And as Christians, we say, well, we're the ministers of mercy. The government has a different role, I think. Um, certainly, I'm grateful to live in a state where we have amazing health care available for moms and children um, and have, have myself, you know, taken advantage of that at times in my life where things were hard. I'm not coming from some ivory tower. Mm -hmm. my, my family has benefited from some of these services. But I don't depend on the government to be those people to give hope. They have resources. Those are important and thank goodness for them, and I think we should have those in place. But the reality is that most of the actual work is being carried out by uh, women who every Monday gather with single moms that have been through domestic violence and drug addiction and all kinds of things. They feed them a meal. They have childcare, so they get a break because most of them are single moms, and they take them through life skills and Bible study. And you know, every week, week in and week out, they try and help them untangle their lives a little bit more and a little bit more until they're free. That's the kind of thing that I see. I see believers that are celebrating 
birthdays two, three, four mm-hmm. years out of these moms who have chosen life because they're involved and they're mm-hmm. friends with these people and they go to church together and they mm-hmm. celebrate, you know, these different milestones because it isn't just a one-stop shop and we're done and we check out. So I like to, I think it's kind of fun to let people call me a pro-birther because I'm like, I can tell you stories. <laughs> let me just tell you some stories about the amazing care that goes on and on and on. And in our backyard in the Pacific Northwest, this is a very unique thing. So I will admit that in Washington State, we have a beautiful thing that it's happening in other places, but not maybe on the scale that we've been able to see unity um, happen within Washington. And we pray that it will continue to grow and start to um, reach other regions. All this work is being done, but maybe not so much in a community where um, you know, a pregnancy clinic can now say, well, you know, instead of we, we know there's some housing over there, maybe you should go online and apply. They can say, you have a six-year-old? Well, you would qualify for Acres of Diamonds program. They take children up to 13. And oh my goodness, you'll love Madeline, their intake manager. She's amazing. (laughs) She'll help walk you through the steps. There's a different feel to a mom who's in crisis than, well, there's some housing over there and we think they might be a good fit, you know, to we know these people, we love them. We actually just went to their ribbon cutting, you know, and there's, there's relationship happening between all these different people. That's really the goal of abundant life is we call it the pro-life ecosystem. This is, this is oftentimes a scenario where a woman is going to be layers deep in some different issues in her life, whether it's emotional and psychological, whether it's tangible, whether it's education related, whether it's transportation, there's a lot of things that these moms need that we need to be ready to jump in and, Um, What we have right now, we have a little bit of a people shortage. A lot of our nonprofits after COVID, their volunteer force was a bit decimated. And so we're really hopeful that as people become aware of how um, unified their community is and how much good is being done, that they'll be encouraged to step in and step up and say. So how do we do that? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, my other question, part of that is if someone wanted to find more information on these organizations or a list of these organizations, where could they find that? Yeah, our website has uh, uh, both a resource list, which includes more than our 38 partners. It includes any resource that a man, woman, or child might need in a family situation. And that's at AbundantLifeWA, W-A, AbundantLifeWA.org. On top of that, we have uh, ways to connect and say, you know, here's the different ways you can get involved in the community. You can reach out to us. And we kind of act as a funnel. We have a few volunteer opportunities ourselves through our auto clinic, which is amazing. Mackenzie has been leading that for the last couple of <laughs> years. We've served hundreds of clients in the Pacific Northwest. Most of those uh, clients actually come through our partner organizations. So there's just amazing accountability when you're in relationship with other nonprofits that, you know, the reality is sometimes people will use the system. And so as a community, we can really carefully make sure that we're serving those who are working towards a better future. And, um, so that's been really fruitful, but there is a list also of our partners um, on our website, so you can be familiar with. You know, everybody's got kind of a different heart. We're all mm-hmm. called to different areas. I, you know, I don't think everybody's called to go and be a pro-life activist. That's a pretty small niche, but we are all. You know, there's a, a saying that I think is just really important for us to dwell on, and that is that loving our neighbor is not a calling; it's a commandment. The way that mm-hmm. we live that out, the way mm-hmm. we walk that out, that's our calling. There will be a specific area that we all have our hearts broken for. So I don't advocate to the person that's working in human trafficking to come over here. you got to help mm-hmm. us with these little babies. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say there is a, a distinction in the um, moral crisis that we're fa- facing in our country 
that uh, there are little babies dying every day, and that that does, mm-hmm. you know, not not every issue carries the same moral weight. That doesn't make them maybe more important than one another, but there's an urgency to there are lives yeah. at stake here. Yeah, and and trafficking, there are some parallels, really. Oh yeah, and, everything's and crossovers here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and we have several partners now. Uh, one is a housing program up in um, Linden and Getty Refuge that helps women that are coming out of sex trafficking and, and abortion crosses over almost yep. every one of their yeah. stories at some point. So we want to be ready with healing and help. So for yeah. the person who is in need of resources and the person who is in need of stepping up yes. and getting involved, <laughs> that website is where to go. That's exactly. where to start. Yeah, and we can help. I mean, that's one thing we're passionate about is that our role is really a ministry to other ministries. We're not, mm. maybe you haven't heard of us, and that's by design. We're really trying to work behind the scenes mm-hmm. to help elevate these organizations, to help uh, you know fund them, help give them what they need so that they can thrive and shine. And it's a really unique position to be in. We really love it, but it means that you may not hear of us as often because we want you to be looking to them and the work that they're doing and how you can best get in involved. And so um, there's a lot of information on the website about the kinds of opportunities that they that there are, but you can always reach out and ask us, say, I've got a heart for this. You know, what are the options? We have a lot of open volunteer op- you know, opportunities all over the Pacific Northwest right now. Yeah, that's great. All right. Um, there's one more thing I want you to tell us about. <laughs> it's a, And it's another resource for oh, our good. listeners to okay. get involved, right? So Hit us with it. What's coming? I'm just ready for this. I'm on the edge of my seat. Oh, man, this has been such a a cool year of planning and dreaming of this. But we are on the cusp of hosting Washington State's very first ever pro-life conference. It's going to be a day-long conference. Um, I've done a lot of research to try and figure out, has this happened before? I don't want to say this if it's not true. And you can, you know, reach out to Josie and give her an email (laughs) if I'm wrong. But I don't know of any other pro-life conference that has come to Washington State. And really, the purpose... The mission statement of this conference is to equip and engage the church. So if you are a believer that knows this is important, but you have felt like I did for years, I'm throwing pennies at a million dollar problem here. What do I do? God, you know, how can I be used to maybe make a little bit more tangible difference? Um, this is the place to go. We've got a lineup of just amazing speakers coming. Uh, one is Eric Metaxas. So if you've ever read uh, Amazing Grace, the Wilberforce biography that was made into a movie in the last, I don't know, that was probably longer ago than I want to admit. <laughs> it was a beautiful movie, but an even better book. Um, there's a, a New York best-selling uh, version of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography that I'm in the middle of right now. Um, he also was a writer on Veggie Tales. That's important for many oh, of us yes. Oh, yes. that grew up in that generation. So, uh, but he's just amazing and funny and engaging, and um, he really helps bring a lot of clarity to this particular issue. And studying in history with several of these different, you mentioned the Holocaust, and we look at mm-hmm. slavery in America, and, and are there parallels between how we treat the unborn and how we treated the Jewish population or the disabled and how we treated um, black men and women in our own country. Um, So are we willing to actually step back and evaluate, could there be a connection there? So he's going to speak to that. Um, And we've got uh, Dr. Anthony Levitino, like I mentioned earlier, who is a former abortionist that will speak to um, his experience in that industry. And that's a powerful testimony to hear. Uh, And many others, we've got a conference website set up that's uh, Love Life dot org backslash Washington conference spelled out, not W A Washington conference. And we'll have all of these links in the description of the podcast. So you can just go click on there. Perfect. That's much easier than trying to to type it out. But love life is an organization that we partner with that we are very much hoping will, um, have a big presence growing in Washington state, especially with us becoming 
this sort of abortion destination, um, they do sidewalk outreach, which can be kind of a controversial thing. A lot of people hear that and they're like, oh, here we go. This is a crazy mm-hmm. pro-lifers and they get this caricature. What is a Christian pro-lifer? Um, and unfortunately, you know, that's mostly unfounded. You'll get a small percentage of, of people that go out and kind of um, behave in a way that we may not uh, align in. But this particular organization, um, one of the things they say that I love is we're not motivated by the sin of abortion. We're motivated by the love of Jesus. And when they mm-hmm. go out there, they're out there with scientific facts. They're out there with local resources. And they're basically redirecting women to organizations like the ones we partner with for help and hope. And that is the purpose or healing if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, they've been doing amazing things um, all throughout the country. And we're really excited to see them come into Washington in and in a greater presence. And we'll learn a little bit more about their ministry through the conference along with other sharpening and and tools when and where great question Josie I'm glad you (laughs) asked (laughs) so this conference is happening October 1st it's going to be held at Cedar Park Church in Bothell Um, right now we've got tickets on sale um, and there is an early bird price each month it basically goes up so I don't know when this podcast is going out but June 1st is our first deadline and then I think July 1st is our next so I would encourage you to get on early we only have about 950 seats for this conference and it's already selling out pretty quickly so we would encourage anybody that um, is interested to sign up and show up it's going to be an amazing time fantastic I cannot wait yeah all right can you tell me why do you have hope for this topic Yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of those things I, I think you might have noticed that most of my approaches when discussing this with people, because I tend to come from a perspective of I'm going to talk to an atheist or I'm going to talk to somebody that doesn't have a biblical grounding, is not tossing scripture out at people. That's where my worldview comes from. That's where my hope comes from. But every single conversation I've ever had, even if I start with science, philosophy, ethics, and all these other things, always boils down to hope. We really don't have hope for anybody, whether they're disabled, whether they're, you know, impoverished, any of these different circumstances. We don't have a tangible hope without Jesus Christ. Um, So our founding verse for Abundant Life is John 10, 10. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's a little bit of a cliche title for our organization, but there was no better title. Um, We are not, you know, and and it kind of almost flies in the face of this pro-birth idea. We're not just for life. We're for life abundantly. We Mm -hmm. want people to know Christ and to experience the hope that he brings even through those trials because all of us will face them. That is the human condition. We will all suffer, but we serve a God who was not distant from that suffering, but he came and he partook in that himself. And that's just amazing. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I'm just so thankful that you would come and give your time for us. This this episode is a little longer than our normal episodes, uh, and it is packed full. I feel like I'm going to need to go back and re-listen probably three or four times. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I saying, you feel free to just hit pause once in a while, take a break, stretch, <laughs> and come back to it. Yeah. Um, I think this is highly valuable and very timely, and I'm so encouraged by it. Thank you. Well, I'm encouraged by any opportunity that we have to to really step into this and dig in and bring clarity. And I pray that this will bring clarity to the listeners. And, um, you know, you've got our website. If you guys have any questions or any any follow-up, we'd love to engage and answer any of those. We'd love to dialogue. Awesome. awesome. Great. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you to Beth and Bo for sitting at the table with me to talk about this important subject. There's really nothing more I can add to this. It's just got so much great content. I'm going to need to go back and listen to it a few more times myself. 
If you would like more information on any of the ministries mentioned, we've included the links in the description. And be sure to get your tickets to the Love Life Conference coming in October. Now be filled with the hope of Jesus, and we'll see you soon for another great episode.